Welcome to the seventh episode of our Think Differently and Deeply podcast series. My name is Glenn Whitman, and I direct the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School. This series features authors from the recently published volume of the CTTL's internationally recognized publication, Think Differently and Deeply, which has been distributed to over 10,000 teachers, school leaders, and policymakers worldwide. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Jordan Love, who is the head of the lower school at St. Andrews. This episode and this conversation will focus on the work Jordan has been doing with his preschool through second grade teachers and students around integrating mindfulness practices into the school day and the school's program that is now in its third year. Welcome, Jordan. Hi, Glenn. Awesome. Glad so, to glad to have you. We are on your couch in your office in Potomac, Maryland. Um, so I got to start with the obvious question. How would you, from a, from a teacher and school leader perspective, uh, define mindfulness? Mindfulness is the practice of being present in the moment that is currently happening. And to do that, you have to uh, allow yourself to use various strategies to push whatever is swirling in your mind, uh, allow that to dissolve to the background, and, and focus on this present moment. Um, and being able to be mindful means you have to be self-aware. So first it's that sense of self-awareness, and then it's the strategies to clear one's mind to be present in what's happening at this moment. Fantastic, though I'm not too sure if I do it that well. Um, what, a, what, what inspired you to write an article for Think Differently and Deeply uh, around this topic that is certainly um, a topic that's being discussed not only at the local level at St. Andrews, but also at the national level uh, as well? Um, this is work that ties in directly to what we think is best for all of us, and especially young children. We want them to be able to, you'll hear educators say a lot um, often, um, speak often about, we need students to focus. We need students to focus and pay attention. We need them to be able to listen uh, to themselves and one another. Um, and so at the core of this is being aware and uh, having children be able to regulate. Um, I was inspired personally by what I felt like were gains that I made um, after um, investing some time in sort of reading literature around mindfulness and then developing um, a personal practice. And I thought that there would be tangential benefits uh, first for the adults in the building, um, the faculty and staff, and then hopefully I thought uh, that could transcend down to the students. So I want to unpack that a little more because you sparked a, a thought in my head that I think is really good for our audience. Talk a little bit about your journey of sort of how and when you were exposed to mindfulness in the research. What were some of those steps it took for you to get in that space to then say, hmm, maybe this is really good for my faculty and ultimately our students? So early on in my leadership journey, uh, I was talking with other leaders about things that they were doing to stay on top of all the demands that um, you know school leaders have on them. Um, and uh, one of the things that someone suggested to me was to read a book by John Kabat-Zinn, his preeminent book about mindfulness. Wherever you go, there you are. There it is. It's right over there. It's right over there. <laughs> yeah, I um, and uh, I read that book in the summer of 2013 and was inspired to try to be more mindful in my own life. I was a father of two young children. This was uh, a leadership role that was all-encompassing, uh, the demands of just everyday life. And so I felt like it was necessary for me 
to build something into my life that allowed me to have some space and to be able to enjoy the moments that were happening in front of me instead of you know thinking back and wondering what could have been or looking ahead and then missing those opportunities that were right in front of me sure so that was the start of this and then the following year I decided it would I, I would reach out to some um, local organizations that were doing this work to see if they had experience talking to teachers you know the teaching profession is one of the most demanding professions. I think it is the most demanding profession. And teacher burnout in our profession is very prevalent. We're very fortunate here at St. Andrews um, to have very little teacher turnover, but that doesn't mean that our teachers aren't uh, driven to succeed. And in that drive to be great, you uh, can sometimes lose sight of where you are in the moment. And uh, teacher burnout creates obviously lots of teacher turnover. And so um, I wanted to be able to empower the teachers with self-care strategies. And so um, what we did was we partnered with an organization who came in and just did a basic self-care um, presentation to the faculty. For the adults. For the adults. Uh, my feeling was it had to be for the adults. And I wasn't telling anybody that they had to go out and begin implementing this. They needed to experience it for themselves to see if it aligned with you know what they wanted for themselves. Sure. Um, and so at the same time I was reading more research about some of the neuroscience behind this and, and a lot of what some preliminary studies were saying was you know um, having a mindfulness practice, having a, a, a consistent breathing practice uh, allows you to reduce cortisol levels, allows you to increase optimism and resiliency. There were some studies that were coming out that were suggesting that teachers who had a consistent um, mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction practice in their classroom were getting better sleep. Um, and we know how important sleep is. Absolutely. Um, so uh, a lot of this was breaking around the same time. And so as that was happening, I, I realized that, you know, this work, if the faculty was inspired by it, would be a direction that maybe we could take it with the kids. But it didn't start out with me thinking about bringing it to the classrooms, I first wanted to make sure that the teachers felt like they were being cared for. Right. No, no it, it, it's interesting, right, you have where you started with the faculty and getting them in the, right, uh, in the right emotional space as well to be the most effective for their kids. So, you know, you start your article uh, in volume three of Think Differently and Deeply with a really great anecdote about what mindfulness looks like today at the lower school. And I think our audience would want to know, um, hopefully they'll come visit one day, but if they, if they can't, you know, what does it look like here, both in a formal practice, but sort of the, the indirect benefits that you're seeing or feeling or, or hearing? Right. Um, so that story was the first year we began to try to implement the practice of mindfulness in the classroom. That particular assembly was a culmination of several months of classroom teacher observations by um, um, outside practitioners who would come and give um, little mini lessons and then would teach the teachers some of the language around how to lead that lesson. Um, and then also integrating yoga and movement practice into that. And so we invited all of the parents in the community to come and spend the morning with us 
for a mindfulness and yoga assembly. We spent the first 10 minutes just talking with parents about the benefits of, of mindfulness in the classroom and movement in the classroom. And then we invited the children to come up and they sat with their parents and you know, you get a room filled with, you know, 80 to 100, two to eight year olds. There's a lot of energy in that room. Um, and But maybe not a lot of mindfulness. Exactly. In the very beginning, you know, um, I think that was one of, um, you know, how would this how would this end up looking to everyone who sure. uh, was experiences for the first time, um, mainly the, the, the parent community, um, but also all of us who were in this space for the first time all together to do this. Right. And uh, our instructor, uh, she led an exercise called the mountain story, which talks about uh, growing larger and growing bigger, and then there's breathing associated with that. And then there's another practice called soar with the eagle, and then there's a, a seedling practice where they students uh, listen to the instructor, sort of guide them through uh, a meditation where they grow as seeds. Um, and so there's movement and breathing involved. And at the end, there's a moment where we come together and we do a I am happy, I am good a chant. And you watch the children engaging with their parents, but also really in their own space, right where they are in that moment, feeling a sense of goodness about themselves, Hmm. feeling a sense of connection to the people that are around them. And then you stop and you pause, and we had just a a mindful moment where the chime was rung and everybody was just breathing in unison, and just watching the room and feeling how the energy had changed from the moment the kids had walked in there they got up and left that assembly and they could tackle anything that was in front of them at that point. Yeah, and so that was, to me, I realized the power of these practices in learning environments because we want kids to be able to self-regulate. We want them to be able to be empathetic. We want them to be compassionate. And we have to model that for them, but we also have to give them these practical strategies to be able to access that so that when things come up in the classroom, when conflict arises, when a friend says something that hurts your feelings, you know how to resolve that conflict. But before you can resolve that conflict, you know how to understand how you feel emotionally, pinpoint where that is, where you feel that in your body, and have a strategy, practical strategy, that allows you to bring yourself back down. All right, so I have to ask you this question, and I, I, I know this is potentially some uh, embarrassment. What does the I am happy, I am good chant look like? Um, so um, <laughs> sitting uh, upright with your legs crossed, okay. um, the the children put um, their two pointer fingers out, okay. uh, and um, they, 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 they put their thumb and their... Uh, pinky and um, ring finger together. Okay. And as you keep the beat with yeah. your hands on your on your knees, right. you say, I am happy. I am good. Fantastic. I am happy. <laughs> I am good. And the, the idea is that you're you're getting into a mindful space in that moment that allows you to to A, you're raising your own confidence by telling yourself, um, it's sort of that self talk, I'm good enough. You know, uh, I can do this before you take on a challenge. Um, And again, we want our kids to have that kind of self-talk before they sit down before a test 
or they're about to take on something that might they might feel like they're not good at or that it's challenging. Right, right. So you mentioned the idea of teaching kids, uh, our youngest learners, or even our oldest learners, empathy and, and conflict resolution mm. skills or grit or resiliency. It, it, it's not a new idea, right? I mean, schools right. for years have been trying to do that. Why are you hopeful that maybe mindfulness might be a better path to helping kids uh, develop those really important skill sets, not only for successful students and, and you know to achieve high at school and develop good relationships, but just for, for life. So I think there's a couple of approaches. I, I think that there are have been um, you know positive reinforcement approaches sure. in classrooms. There's um, you know. Uh, behaviorist approaches where you um, try to extrinsically motivate students to do things yep. and we really believe here at St. Andrews about intrinsic motivation we want children to want to be good because it feels good to be good um, and so uh, we've used a formal program called responsive classroom that I'm sure many educators are familiar sure. with yep. for years um, and uh, that's been terrific in terms of building a community uh, that where we all have a shared language where students feel a deep sense of belonging and there's a consistent routine to the day there's built-in uh, time for academic choice there's just a lot of benefits to that program but we also know that we want to acknowledge that when kids are hijacked in the moment of, of being upset about something it's really difficult uh, for them or I would say even an adult to access uh, the frontal lobe and be able to make good decisions um, and that's usually what you see a kid gets upset they're angry they have a basal response they fight fight or freeze you know the amygdala is firing nothing's happening nothing's getting through and cortisol levels are rising sure. and uh, you are frozen or you're stuck or you lash out um, and so in that moment, children need to have strategies. And so we really felt like pairing the mindfulness practices where you're exploring where you feel emotion, what emotions, and, and, and also being emotionally aware about your peers. What, what, what do you think your peer's face is saying right now? What do you think their body is telling you about how they feel? And how can you both have compassion for them and then be able to have the kindness to try to help them through that. So we talk a lot about sort of the neuroscience behind this and I think that's one of the pieces too that really has come out of our, our journey is um, how do we teach the children about how their brain works, what's happening inside there uh, when you f experience emotion. Sure. You know, the common phrase we talk about is flipping your lid. So if you take your thumb and you put your thumb in between your four fingers and roll your four fingers over, your hand kind of looks like a brain, sure. yep. right? And so we tell the kids that the, the, the front knuckles there, that's your frontal lobe. And underneath there, that little uh, thumb underneath is the almond-shaped amygdala, right? right? And so <laughs> when you flip your lid, um, you know, you lose control of your frontal lobe. Um, you don't, you, your decision power, your decision-making power is, is extremely limited. So you have to have strategies to bring back down that frontal lobe. And I talk a little bit with the kids about their wizard brain and their lizard brain and the frontal lobe being your wizard brain where you get to make all these great decisions and your lizard brain being that base brain, you know, the fight, flight, freeze uh, mentality. 
And so what are the strategies that we have? And they're basic. I mean, you know, it's take five. It's a, it's a five finger breath. Right. Um, it's bunny breaths, which help to energize three quick breaths and then a long oh, exhale. Great. It, there are balloon breaths where you move your arms. And a lot of this incorporates movement and breathing. But what we've seen in terms of a community and culture is that now teachers are using this language instead of jumping right into conflict resolution. Okay, what happened? Who did what? How can we make amends for this? Um, we start first with how are you feeling? Right. You know, where do you feel it? Right. What do you need right now to help your body? and your mind to calm. And what we're seeing more and more now that we're in our third year of this is that kids can say, I feel it in my stomach. I feel it in my hands. I need to go sit with the breathing ball. Or I want to go to the mindful bench that we have in our room or the mindful corner that we have in our room and look at the glitter, the we call them mindful jars or just <laughs> glitter jars and you shake them up and you watch the glitter fall and then you come back to the circle after you've had a moment to sort of breathe and reflect and connect and then then you can begin the process sure. of conflict resolution. Yeah. And I really appreciate the, those specific strategies that have emerged from the research. Um, uh, I should probably be using some of my own. <laughs> but you started to hint about measurement. So yeah. I, you know, I know as a research-informed school, one of the questions we get, um, the, the center gets, is how do you know it's working, right? Whether it's qualitative data, quantitative data, or you know, schools that want to consider bringing mindfulness practice in, Generally, they have to say, what's your proof? Mm-hmm. Not an easy question in an education setting, uh, but I would love to know at this point, what's your proof that you're on the right track? So that's a very good question. <laughs> um, so for the first two years, a, a, a lot of it was just empirical in terms of like what we observed and, and what we did in terms of talking sure. with, with students and talking with teachers about what they were, were seeing and what they observed. Um, in their students. Um, Most recently, uh, we've partnered with uh, an organization, a local organization called Peace of Mind. It was developed by two teachers who have been teaching a peace class at a local public school. And they incorporated into their peace class, which we do every week um, as part of uh, the morning meeting routine of our responsive classroom. So we make time for it every week to do this. We had a uh, we, we have a fall survey that came through Peace of Mind um, that asked our students directly about their experience. What was really exciting is that we gave the survey to first and second graders. These are the students who've been in the school um, for several years. Sure, yeah. um, so they've had the benefits of now three years of, of mindfulness programming. Um, and we asked them questions about, do they know when they feel worried? Do they know when they feel sad? I was really glad to see that over 70% of first and second graders said they, they do know and they can self-identify when they feel for worried or frustrated and where they feel it. So there's a self-awareness there that we were talking about. 60% said then that they knew what to do to calm down and a little under 50% said they knew what to do to wor- to ease their mind when they were worried. So. I know that that might not seem like tremendous numbers, but to me that if 50% of your kids in your class know when they feel worried and how to limit their worry on their own independently, then that means that as far as a teacher's concerned, there's more time 
for them to really get to the content, sure. to really do the teaching, because you're not you're not going around the class constantly putting out little fires here and there. Fifty-six percent of the kids said that their mind wandered in class, which is we as we look at some of the research. You know, most people's minds, people that are listening to this podcast right now, <laughs> one out of two of those people are not paying attention right now. Yeah, so start paying attention, people. Come on. Right. Unless you're present, and unless you're able to be be aware of that and draw your attention back. So, but seventy-six percent of the kids in first and second grade said that they knew strategies to help them refocus when they became distracted. So that's the self-regulation piece. Right, right. So if three quarters of your kids you know, are going to be distracted 50% of the time, which is going to happen, if they know strategies to bring them back, again, that's one less thing that takes time away from learning. Yeah. So can I, I, now I got, first of all, I've never seen somebody so enthusiastic sharing data. So uh, fantastic. And, you know, I, and uh, you know, from the center's perspective at St. Andrews, right, you know, there's good data and bad data, but but there's data that really should inform us, and I and I and I love that we've we've headed down this road together. Right. But These are just responses that the kids provided to um, through our survey. There was an electronic component, and then there was also um, a narrative component, which. I, I really enjoy because that's where you get to see the, the kids really expressing right, their right. thinking about right. this thing, about these things. But I would say that what really stood out is kids in this community know that it's important to be kind and care about each other. Awesome. 100% of the kids said that. And so if there's anything that I take away from that, it's as an educator, we have the culture. We've created a culture here where everyone thinks it's important to be kind and to be considerate to one another and have compassion. And that creates a lot of opportunities for other forms of learning to happen. Uh, you, you mentioned something I think is really important. I, I imagine for most people who are listening to this, their education experiences did not include a lot of mindfulness. So if they would walk into you chanting in the hallway or in the, in the, in, in the upstairs room at, at our school or even in individual classes, They'd be like, well, shouldn't they be teaching more math or English language arts? So I'd love to unpack this concept. If, if the students, as well as the teacher, are at a mindful state or they have strategies to solve problems, uh, it actually allows teachers to focus more on whatever their lessons are. Because I think a lot of people will be skeptical that this is taken away from real teaching. Mm -hmm. So elaborate more on that concept of, of how this might help the quality of instruction um, and be able to maybe even go deeper um, with the lessons that a teacher decides to do. So I think what you would see in a classroom is teachers who are monitoring the temperature of the room and they have a distinct understanding of uh, what each child might need in any given moment and they're it, it might not necessarily be a mindfulness or a breathing or movement intervention that they choose or they talk with the student about employing um, in that moment, but it, it differs from class to class and time period to, during the day. You know, but we do have these dedicated times to right. it. So in a dedicated time, um, like during peace class, um, we're specifically talking with the kids about um, uh, their emotions, their feelings, um, how they notice emotions in, in themselves and others. Um, and we've made time in the schedule to do that once a week. Um, but it's taken away from doing math. Right. But after that class, you know, after the children right. have had that time to, 
to talk about where they are and to practice strategies. Right. I would argue they're primed for learning in a more full and complete way. When things do arise during the day, there are real practical strategies that teachers know how to employ in those moments to get kids back on track. You can use these strategies throughout their day. It doesn't just have to be any one particular time you do them, but it's through the practice of it and through the commitment to that practice that the kids see the value in it and don't just go through the motions. They really know that there's a value to it for them. And that's the same thing I would say to you as before is that I never told a teacher that you have to do mindfulness or you have to start your own practice. I wanted them to experience that for themselves right. first. And in doing so, people feel the value of it. Um, we started these trainings with teachers at the end of a day, at the end of a long, busy day, so that they would enter that space feeling tired, right. feeling exhausted, and frankly, feeling like, this is probably the last place I want to be right now. <laughs> sure. And inevitably, right. at the end of those hour-long sessions, 90-minute sessions, everybody would say, I'm so glad we did this because right. it has a, a real impact on both your, your body um, but also your mind. And I really feel like a, a sense of awareness and confidence can spring up from that. You feel like you can tackle any challenge. So these strategies need to be made time for. So, uh, you know, my, my final question for you um, is, what do you see as the next frontier as a school leader? But also, what have you learned in this journey along the way? So the next frontier in this journey and, and, in, and in schools uh, around the work of mindfulness is the body of research you know, that I hope is forthcoming. I know there are some studies, long-term oh, yeah. studies, that are coming out related to um, the benefits of this practice. I think becoming more formalized in terms of uh, a classroom practice across um, all ages and stages. You know, I think, it, you know, there's a benefit um, to working with young kids. They're incredibly open to to trying new things yep, yep. you know and they experience the learning um, in a different way than maybe older children do that where they're more self-aware and they're looking at how their peers are doing it and and what their peers are thinking about how they're doing it so I know that this work can have some challenges doing it with older kids who might say you know that's just not for sure, me yeah, or that's so. not cool or um, I'm not gonna you know close my eyes or breathe like you know they, they might be resistant to it but I I would argue that if you can start earlier, um, the, the children learn the benefit of it earlier and it becomes something that's not not to be um, um, anxious about. Yeah. If anything, it's supposed to open you up. So research is one frontier. Spreading this work up to uh, you know middle and high school age students, as we see now in our country, um, higher rates of anxiety and stress um, for young children and, and, and not just young children but adolescents. Um, you know, this work is essential and integrating it into the, the regular school day. These are lifelong practices. Right. These are practices that will help you as an adult just as much as I would argue knowing um, your math facts timetables. Um, um, and so we do both equally well here. And that is, um, well, when you come back in three years and you interview me about this, 
I'd like to be able to show you student outcomes in terms of achievement as it relates to this work in their assessments and I'd like to be able to, to show you that across the board we are implementing mindfulness practice from two-year-olds up through 12th grade. No, it'd be great. I, I teach 10th graders so you know down the road it'd be nice to see if uh, they're at a, even a better social and emotional place uh, for a variety of reasons have an experience uh, firsthand that our lower school. So we've come to the end of our podcast but um, at St. Andrews we often end our classes with some form of exit ticket. Uh, or active retrieval of information uh, that was a focal point of today's class. We know from mind, brain, and education research that if students don't start recalling or using their learning, they are bound to forget it. Now, we have a unique opportunity. I, I would love to see if we can recreate a virtual or audio mindfulness moment. So can you, Jordan, lead us through a quick mindfulness exercise. I see you brought some props. Uh, I'll try my best. Let's give it a shot. Uh, Hopefully the audience can play along. Okay, so for this exercise, um, if you can, get seated in a comfortable upright position with your feet on the floor and your back against uh, the chair that you're sitting in. And lower your gaze. Uh, If you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes. And I want you to just take a, a slow, deep breath in through your nose and let it out slowly through your mouth. And one more time. And let it out slowly. Now I'm going to ring a chime. And as the chime rings, I want you to focus on your breath and focus on listening to the chime. And I want you to keep your eyes closed and keep breathing steadily and if you lose your focus if your mind begins to wander I want you to take it back to the breath and then when the bell ceases to ring you cease to hear the bell ringing anymore I want you to slowly open your eyes How do you feel? I feel mindful. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. It was great to chat with you. Uh, let's book two years from now to uh, get an update to our audience. To those who listen to this, thank you very much for joining us. If you have your own experiences integrating mindfulness into your school or classroom, we would love to hear them. Tweet your thinking um, or experiences to at the CTTL. And I hope all of us can continue this conversation with our teachers, school leaders, and those who want the best for our children every day. The Think Differently and Deeply podcast is a production of the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Potomac, Maryland, where the mission is to know and inspire each child in an inclusive community dedicated to exceptional teaching, learning, and service. Each podcast is produced by Kirsten Peterson and mixed by Jordan Yance. Jordan also composed our theme music, which we lovingly call The Growth Mindset. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and more. And while you're there, leave us a review. 
This act of reflection will embed what you've learned from this podcast into your long-term memory.